0: Welcome to the podcast. This is Your Daily Drive, and I am Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me. I want to talk about conditional love in this podcast. Conditional love is I will love you as long as you meet my expectations. Now, you know that is a problematic way of relating to another individual because there's not a person on this planet that can meet your expectations the way that you want them and in the time frame in which you may want them perfectly. It is not possible, not all the time. And if we're not careful, we can fall into the conditional love trap. I will love you as long as... You are doing xyz for me. This happens all the time in marriage. I've been doing marriage counseling for a long time. And I see this idea of conditionalism, conditional love regularly. And it's because a spouse has done something wrong, now I'm not condoning what they have done wrong. I would especially if it's sin, I would never condone sin. But there are these passages in Scripture that are hard passages for us to process, especially when it's happening to us. I'm talking about the love your enemy passages. In Matthew 544, it says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In 546, it says, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same In Luke 6, it says this, I say to you who hear, this is Jesus talking, by the way, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. We can very easily fall into this conditional trap. And so I want to talk about it. And if you want to read this podcast, you're welcome to do that. The title of the podcast is, You Hurt Me, So I Don't Love You Anymore. Now that can be a huge problem in how you think about other people, especially those within your sphere of influence. I had a friend of mine just remind me four days ago about this article I'd written it a few years ago, and of course, I'm on this five-year plan. I'm trying to get all of our article content in audio format, so I'm doing a podcast for all of our resources so that you can have the option to read our articles or to listen to them. And so I had not put this one in podcast, and quite honestly, I'd forgotten about this article, but he reminded me of it. And my friend Jim told me, he said that I have this article saved on my desktop, I thought, wow, all right, well, I need to put this in a podcast for you, Jim. And so that's what I'm doing here. Now, he went on to say that he has shared this with scores of other people. This is one of his go-to articles, and I would assume the way that he was talking about it, that this article has affected him more than any other that I've written on our website, and so I'm grateful for that. Now, you're welcome to share this as well. You're welcome to save it to your desktop like my friend Jim did. And of course, if you want to read it word for word, there's 2,000 words here, a little more, I suppose. You can read it. You can use it as a study. I would encourage you to do this because this idea of conditionalism, it's a big deal. It really is. You're probably disappointed every day by something, by someone, probably by someone who's really close to you, and you have to guard your heart about how you think about them and how you respond. Now let me give you a caveat for this article because there is a lot of abuse that goes on in marriages and other relationships within the church, in with within our church environments as well. And so I feel compelled that what I need to do is to make sure that you clearly understand that this podcast is not intended for those who have gone through abuse or are going through abuse or any other kind of violence. Loving those who hurt you does not mean it does not apply, imply that you must subject yourself to abuse. I am not saying that at all. The right response to abuse, listen to me, the right response to abuse is to leave the abuser. Now you can still love the abuser. And I think it's important for us to make sure that we understand what the word love means. Love is a broad word, and I'll talk about this in a moment, but sometimes love could mean just having pity on the person that you are thinking about. Pity in this context can be a form of abuse. Now what Jesus said in the passage that I read earlier in Luke 6 The form of love that he's talking about for those who abuse you, he said, pray for those who abuse you. That is a form of love. And so you can love your abuser that way, but it doesn't mean that you have to submit to them. It doesn't mean that anybody uh, has the right, the liberty to run roughshod over you because you are loving them. In fact, I think many times we have a poor definition of love. Sometimes love is courageous and firm and strong and even defiant at times. And so love is a big word, and I want to make sure that you understand what I am talking about when I'm talking about love. But if you are being abused, then here's your response. You need to leave the abuser now, the two words that are in play here for sake of this podcast are love and its opposite, which is hate. And so we have love and hate. Now, both love and hate are supported by the same component parts. Your motive can either be loving or hateful. Your thoughts, your words, and your practices, your love can be supported by motive, thoughts, words, and practices. Hate can be supported by motive, thoughts, words, and practices. And relational challenges, the situations that you're in with another individual, that is the context that will reveal which one of these controls your heart, love, or hate. Every young couple gets married because they are, here it comes, in love and about half of these couples become divorced because they are no longer in love rarely will anyone challenge the couple before marriage regarding their understanding and practice of love and that's a problem i think many of us counselors who do premarriage counseling we should work at trying to discover their view of love and relationship and fallenness and the doctrine of sin and how they have historically responded to those who have disappointed him because disappointed them because guess what? When they come together in a 24-7 space with no exit strategy, eventually they're going to start rubbing each other the wrong way. And that dating relationship that may have been so fantastic is going to become so problematic, and then you're going to have one of them say something like, you hurt me so I don't love you anymore, which is the title of this article and the title of the podcast that you're listening to here. What we can do in our premarital counseling is we can politely assume the young couple knows what they are talking about when they say they are in love. I think if you were to step back from that assumption for a moment and run it through a biblical filter, you might have second thoughts regarding their assessment of love, but also their assessment of each other. Here's a good assessment of each other. Jeremiah 17, 9, you know it well. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Now you can say that you love someone, anybody can say that, but it is only in the crucible of a trial when your authentic understanding and practice of love will become clear. Bring on the heat, and when the heat comes down on you and your relationship, what is inside of you is going to come out, your motive, your thoughts, your words, and and your practices. The young couple in love is no different from you or me. I love my wife before she was my, lo- before she was my wife. I love the dating relationship. I think we should date forever and never get married because dating is perfect. It can be perfect. You can let the girl out at the end of the day. Lucia would go to her parents' house. I would go to my place, and then we'd do a reboot every day. God was good. Life was good. We were so in love. And then she became my wife. Or you could say it the other way. I became her husband. That's probably worse. But when she became my wife, I began to love her less. Of course, I can spend the conversation by saying something like, oh, I loved her, but I did not like her. I've heard this nonsense in counseling many times. It's silly semantics. At best, it's intellectual dishonesty. Let's not split hairs here. Call it what you will, love, like. The point is, and let's not miss the point, none of us will know the kind of love that we have for another person, Until something difficult comes between them. This perspective applies to any relationship, not just marriage. Siblings, brother and brother, sister and sister, brother and sister. Parents, children, work relationships. And let's not talk about the church. When my marriage got tough, my definition of love was tested to the point to where I decided I did not love my wife any longer. I see this outcome all the time in counseling. People are in love. Then they fall out of love. They start harboring a general dislike for each other. They either endure to the end or they get a divorce. Then they become former friends who are no longer friends. Let's talk about biblical love here for just a second. Honestly, There is nothing a person can do to you that can stop you from loving them. Even if your love does turn into sadness, even if your love does turn into the only way that you can love them is by praying for them, by having pity on them because of the choices that they have made. The only way you can love them, as Jesus said in Luke 6, is to pray for them. Though they may never love you in return, they cannot stop you from biblically loving them. The reason is, is that biblical love is not under the power of human sovereignty or human manipulations. God's love is empowered and dispensed by him, and the schemes of human conniving cannot thwart it. Now, most Christians agree with this perspective on biblical love. They know it's from God. They know it's a gift given to humanity and that this love is empowered by the Spirit of God. They realize love is a choice. It is also a privilege. And they even love these love-your-enemy verses that I mentioned earlier. They know to be unwilling. To love your enemies is contrary to the gospel as well as to the Bible because Jesus said it. Let me say it again. Matthew 5, 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Believers believe not to love someone is standing in defiance of the word of God while opening themselves up to the Lord's opposition. When I'm talking about the Lord's opposition, I'm talking about James 4, 6. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When you are proud, which a manifestation of pride is to not love someone, then you are standing in the Lord's opposition. To be like Christ is to love the unlovable. To follow Christ is to love your enemies. Imagine the good Lord saying, I don't love you anymore. Horrors cannot fathom it. We would never unlove that way because we want to be like Jesus. We're not going to say, I do not love you anymore. You see, what God has called us to do is to imitate him. As Paul said in Ephesians 5, imitate God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let me give you an illustration, a case study, if you will. Mabel comes to you sharing a tale of woe about what her spouse did to her. He hurt her. The sin against her is objective. Her story is true, and the disappointment is real. The problem is you cannot change what someone did to her. It is done. The toothpaste does not go back in the tube. You cannot undo hate. But if it does not have to but it does not have to grab hold of our hearts. It doesn't have to control our thinking. And that is what you want to share with Mabel. The danger for Mabel will be if the sin of her husband begins to metastasize in her. It is one thing to be hurt. Again, it happens. You can't take it back. You don't minimize it, marginalize it, trivialize it. It's one thing to be hurt. It's one thing to be disappointed. It's one thing to be let down by someone. It is another thing when their sin takes root in your heart, you should not give the sin of others shelf life in your heart. She may not be able to do much about what her husband did to her, I don't know, but she can begin the process of reorienting her heart to the gospel while appropriating his power. One of the first things you want to do for her is to make sure that she has a more profound realization of God's love. God's love is not dependent on a response from others. The Lord is not controlled by us, as though he needs us to be a certain way before he will love us. Only when you need someone, not putting needs in quotation marks here, only when you need someone will you fall prey to their control. If Mabel needs her spouse to like her, for example, her spouse will control her. Whatever it is that you need Has control over you. Our disappointment in others is proportional to how much we want them to meet our expectations. Now, this is tough stuff. Now, somehow you have to bring it around to where you can walk Mabel through this without hurting her. And one of the primary ways that you could hurt her is by minimalizing what happened to her. I don't want to do that. There's no justification for that. But she needs victory. She needs to come out from under the control of whatever it is that her husband has done for her. A person who craves love will spend most of their time thinking about how others are loving them, and they will critique and measure the love of others. A person who is not seeking love from people will be more focused on loving others. They don't spend their time grading and critiquing. This kind of person who is more focused on loving others will be free from the bondage of love. If you need love, you will fall under the bondage, the spell of love. When I fell out of love with my wife, it was because I was more focused on what she was doing for me Rather than what I was doing for her, at best, my love was conditional. My reaction to her actions exposed my heart for what it was, self-centered and self-serving. It is more important for her to love me than it was for me to love her, and that was a problem. Let me ask, which is more important to you? Do you need someone to love you, or do you need someone for you to love? Those are two different directions with your love. Either I am dependent on love coming to me, and I'm being the receptacle of love, or my desire is primarily to love others. This worldview is just one of the many remarkable things about Jesus, he fixated more on loving others. I am not aware of a time where he talked about how he longed for people to love him. He wanted people to love God. He appealed to them to love others. He wanted all people to have what he had, which was the love of God in his heart. Because the love of God was so powerful in his heart, he did not feel a, a deficit, a need, a requirement for others to meet all of his expectations He knew the path to freedom was to love others more than oneself. But Jesus singularly fixated on loving others so much so that even when they despitefully used him, it was his desire to love them in return. Jesus had a unidirectional love language. His goals were much higher than being loved by us because he wanted to redeem us, even if it meant he was going to die for our crimes. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 2:23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin, live to righteousness righteousness. by his wounds we are healed. He was fixated on loving us. Your first call to action when it comes to redemptive love, when someone does something hurtful to you, is to ask God to give you compassionate love or pity for them. If you do not pray and receive this kind of love from the Father, you'll not be able to move toward redemptive relational goals if it is possible to redeem the relationship. Redemptive purposes released Jesus to ask the Father to forgive those for what they were doing to him. Jesus was a redemptive lover, a person who was more concerned with what others needed then focused on what he was not receiving from them. And this kind of attitude explains why Joseph could forgive his brothers for what they did to him. He was a redemptive practitioner of love. Joseph and Jesus had a vision that transcended their disappointing creature comforts. Imagine that. There is a fuller experience of the riches of God that is not found by expecting or demanding others to love you the way that you want them to love you. And if you miss this point that I'm making, you'll be like a grader with a clipboard and pen and hand measuring and critiquing the kind of love that individuals give to you. When my wife disappointed me, my initial thoughts were not about the magnification of Christ through the trial, but about what I was not receiving from her. This self-centered posture led to more relational tension, as it always does, and as you as you can imagine, and things did not take a turn for the better until there was a turn in my heart. Because of the mercy that is given to me by the Lord, my thoughts begin to shift toward the Creator rather than the creature and what the creature was not giving to me. You will know how you think about your love by how you respond when you are not loved well. And since your mouth reveals your heart, Your words will serve as a mirror to show your genuine self, to show your authentic Christianity. What were the words that came out of your mouth the last time someone disappointed you? That will tell you where you are on this love-hate spectrum. The title of the podcast is, You Hurt Me, So I Don't Love You Anymore. I would encourage you, if you can, to read this article. I have a short video here as well, and then I have three other articles linked here. You can spend a lot of time in this article. Let me give you your call to action. The first step in reconciling and restoring a broken relationship with another person is to reconcile and restore your heart to God. When your sinful disappointment with another person's sin happens. Your first action should be vertical, not horizontal. Now that may be difficult the first few times, but after a while you want this to be your habituation, that it happens instinctively, pneumatically, that when someone disappoints you, you are quickly and automatically reorienting your mind to God before you begin to communicate to the other person on the horizontal level. Let the Lord set you free before you enter into the relationship that has been disrupted by self-centeredness. If you do not do this, you will not have the love of God in your heart. Your sin at their sin will quench and grieve the Spirit's enablement in your heart and life. Only an offended person, empowered by God, can engage their offender with love, mercy, grace, and truth. Jesus could ask for the Father's pity on the mean people who hurt him because his attitude toward them was full of the love of his Father. His response put him at a redemptive advantage, and that is exactly what you want When someone does something unkind to you, you don't want to be controlled by that. But more than that, you want to be at a redemptive advantage. And if your heart is dialed into God first and your mind is reoriented by the power of the gospel, you will have this redemptive advantage. Think about it this way. She hurt me. I am upset with her. Because I am more focused on me than her, I cannot be redemptive in her life. Now, that is how it typically goes with a lot of us. Those are the three steps. Let me repeat them. Number one, she hurt me. Number two, I am upset with her. Number three, because I am more focused on me than her, I cannot be redemptive in her life. And because every time when I say something like what I just said, somebody of the opposite gender says, well, you can turn it around. I try to have enough faith and trust in my readers that they have enough common sense to know that you can turn it around. But some people don't, or maybe they're so angry or so hurt that they have to make sure that this could be the other way as well. And so let me say it the other way just for clarification's sake, he hurt me. I am upset with him. Because I am more focused on me than him, I cannot be redemptive in his life. Now, if this scenario is true for you, it begs the question, do we want to be redemptive in the life of the person who hurt you? If you do want to be a redemptive force in someone Who has hurt you? There is only one thing for you to do. If this scenario is true for you, you need to repent. You must repent. Repentance would look like this. One, she hurt me. Two, I am sad by this, but I see the Lord has given me a counterintuitive gospel opportunity. Three, I am not going to make this about what I am not getting, four. I'm going to make this about God, his glory, and his fame, five. I am now positioned to receive God's grace for my hurt while being empowered by wisdom and courage to act redemptively toward her. Now, that is a dramatically different scene from what I first described, and as you have probably perceived this second illustration is how God saved you. You hurt Christ, but he did not make it about what you did to him. He made it about what he could do for you. The unidirectional force of the gospel leads to redemption. I have some questions here that you're welcome to read. They're at the end of this podcast slash article, and it will help you to do more reflective work on this idea that I'm communicating here. The title of the podcast and the article, You Hurt Me, So I Don't Love You Anymore. And I'm aware that your situation is unique. You have your own relational challenges, whatever they may be. Perhaps you would want to discuss these with us. Then I want you to do that. Go to our website, rickthomas.net, Get your free username and password. And then you can jump on our free community forum and you can ask any question that you want to about this or about something else. Please share this article with someone. You hurt me, so I don't love you anymore. Thank you so much for listening.